Well, good morning. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Psalm 65. We are continuing our study of the Psalms. And we have we've dealt with some um, sort of downcast Psalms in the last couple of weeks uh, as we've talked about things like judgment and uh, depression and, and how God comforts us in the midst of our darkest days. Today we get uh, a psalm that is maybe a bit more what you think of when you think of the psalms. And its, it's primary focus is on praising God for His goodness. And so this is Psalm 65. I'm, I'm going to read it in full and then pray for us. And then we will uh, see what we can learn from this today. Psalm 65. You can read in your Bible or you can follow along on the screen behind me. Praise is due to you, O God, in Zion. And to you shall vows be performed. O you who hear prayer, to you shall all flesh come. When iniquities prevail against me, you atone for our transgressions. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts. We shall be satisfied with the goodness of your house, the holiness of your temple. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation, the hope of all the ends of the earth and of the farthest seas. The one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might, who stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, the tumult of the peoples, so that those who dwell at the ends of the earth are in awe at your signs. You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. You water its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, and blessing its growth. You crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with joy. The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. The valleys deck themselves with grain. They shout and sing together for joy. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can open up your word this morning and we can learn from it how to praise you. I pray that you would unite our hearts around these truths, focus our minds on these things now, and guide me, Lord, to to serve this church well in lifting you up and drawing attention to you and you alone, Lord. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Well, that, that psalm begins at a place that is Maybe familiar if you've read through the Psalms before, certainly something we see in other parts of Scripture, but it may seem a bit curious as you, as you begin to kind of play it around in your mind a bit. David begins by saying, praise is due to you, O God. And you think about what we're saying there. So we're saying, praise is due God. We must praise God. He is worthy of our praise. And of course, we get this from the pen of David but we believe also inspired by God himself. So God is saying, praise is due me. I am worthy of praise. You may have really thought before about what sort of position that puts God in, but uh, C.S. Lewis, whom we've, we've quoted many times before, he thought about this a lot, and he actually had a lot of trouble with this early on. Uh, he's got a little book on his reflections on the Psalms, and there's a whole chapter he says, you know, some of you may kind of laugh when you read this. You may think it's kind of silly, the things I used to think. But he said, this really bothered me. This notion that God's people were always telling me that I should be praising God. 
And even worse, that God himself, in his word, kept saying, I should praise him. And Lewis said, think about it for a second. You know, if, if we knew a man who constantly told us that we had to tell him how great he is, we wouldn't like that man. You know, we would consider him arrogant or, or maybe insecure. You know, he, like he needs other people to affirm him all the time. Or, or think about how we mock a crowd of people when they kind of hang on the coattails of a celebrity. And, and we see a group of people sort of getting their identity from someone else. And they're just kind of around someone because they think that that person's important. And as long as they're seen with that person, they'll be considered important. And we just sort of mock them and, and think them silly. And Lewis said, what a ludicrous image for God and his church. But that's kind of what the Psalms drive us to, right? Because we've got God himself saying, you should praise me. And then we've got God's people here, David himself saying, y'all should praise him. You should praise him. Look, like, look how, how great he is. And so Lewis says, I used to have a lot of trouble with that. But then he began to, to think about it some. And I want to share some of his reflections with you because I, I find them really helpful. So he said, in what sense is praise due to God? What do we really mean when we say God demands praise or, or praise is due to God? Like David says there in verse 1. He says, well, it's, it's kind of how we use, we use the phrase deserves or demands in, in other senses. Like if, if we say that, that this particular artist deserves admiration for the work that they are doing, well, what we're basically saying is that the work that they do is of such high quality that it ought to be praised. It's right and appropriate to praise it, to admire it, to appreciate it. And we're even saying that the work that they do is so good, it's of such high quality that if you fail to see it, the fault is actually not in the art, but in you. You're missing something. It deserves admiration. If you don't see that, it's because your, your glasses are foggy or something. You're just missing what's there in front of you. And so Lewis says in, in the same way, when we say that God is worthy of our praise, we're, we're saying that it's an undeniable reality that God is someone who is due and worthy of our admiration. And for God himself to tell us that is, is God to merely state this truth. It's not that God is begging for our praise like some insecure, Lewis, this is Lewis's line. He says, God is not some clamoring woman, sorry ladies, begging for compliments, right? We shouldn't, we shouldn't read stuff like this and think, oh, poor God, no one will say anything nice to him. So he's constantly telling his people to praise him. As Lewis reminds us, the scriptures tell us God is surrounded by angels singing his praises all the day, right? So if he wanted to hear how great he is, he's getting that already. And surely he could look to other creatures besides us to, to find that sort of support and encouragement if he were lacking it. Lewis gives the parallel. He says, you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't care if my dogs barked approval for my books, right? It just wouldn't matter to me if they liked what I wrote because they're so far beneath me, right? And in the same way, we're so far beneath God, it's not like he needs our praise. So, so what's he doing when he tells us to praise him, when he tells us praises do him, when he, when he commands us to praise him? Well, here's what Lewis came to. And again, I think this is really helpful. He said, you know, if you think about joy, start with joy first. When we really enjoy something, Lewis says, it spontaneously overflows into praise. 
You don't often make a conscious decision to go from truly enjoying something to telling other people about it. That just sort of happens, right? It happens as soon as you are uh, leaving a great restaurant, you visit a new place for the first time, and you're really excited about it, and you instantly start telling other people about it. Last night, Dear Heart Trailer texted several of us a picture of this box of donuts that looked heavenly uh, from this place. Was it Duck Donuts? Uh, none of us asked for that. Um, especially those of us who can't eat gluten and will never taste those donuts. But Hart, in his kindness, in his joy, he had picked up these donuts last night and loved his heart. He was just excited about it. And so he just told some other people about it. Uh, he just sent us a picture of how great these are. And, and again, he wasn't, it wasn't this conscious choice of, I really should praise these donuts because they deserve it. Uh, and, and I don't think, I, don't, I didn't have a chance to ask Hart, but I don't think anyone at Duck Donuts said, hey, hey, sir, would you mind telling your friends about this? Would you please, please, please tell them how great these are? We want them to come and buy them. I think they just said, look, here are some really good donuts. We know what's about to happen, <laughs> right? Uh, in addition to you enjoying them and eating them, you're probably going to tell other people about them because they're just that good, right? And Lewis says, that's what we do when we really enjoy something. Right? We, we take it in and the enjoyment just overflows from us spontaneously. Uh, and, and, and then we begin to invite others in. Lewis puts it this way. He says, praise does not merely express, but it actually completes our enjoyment. Right? It's, it's not merely just putting words to how we feel. It actually completes the enjoyment to invite others in. Uh, this is what you do when you leave a movie that you've watched with your friends and you spend the next 20 minutes of your life recounting the movie, right? Have you ever noticed that? Like when you, when you leave the theater with a group of people, what do you do? You say, oh, did you see that part? Yeah, like we were all there. We all saw that part. You know, wasn't it funny? Yeah, I laughed. That's what we do when we think something's funny. I mean, there's no reason to do that, to have that conversation, except that in our hearts, when we enjoy something, we spontaneously overflow by praising that thing by talking about how great it is and by inviting others in. Wasn't that cool? Oh, you guys have got to see this movie. You've got to try this new restaurant. We do it all the time. And so Lewis says, this is what we do when we encounter something that we value. And so we shouldn't be shocked that this is what God's people do when they encounter that object in this universe of ultimate value, God himself. That's, that's what David is doing there when he says, praise is due to you, O God. He's saying, I have tasted and seen God is good, and there is nothing more that I can say that others should experience. That others should take him in. Others should know what joy there comes in knowing this God. It just overflows out of him spontaneously. We've, you've heard before the Westminster Catechism, uh, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Lewis says, in commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. All right, so when God himself gives this command and tells us to give him praise, it's not this burden that we should feel. Oh, now we have to praise God because he said so. Now he's inviting us to the supreme experience of that joy that we find only in him that again is completed when we invite others in. This is what we do when we sing together on Sunday mornings. Did you guys know we just did all that? That's what we were doing just now. We, we, we were praising God 
And we were inviting each other into this experience of reflecting on how good he is. Now, the, the corporate singing that we do on Sunday morning, that's just one expression of worship. We don't, we don't want to define worship or praise as just that time. Uh, but it's appropriate to use that, that word uh, for that activity. And it's a good reminder that when we sing as a church, our singing is not about us, is it? It's actually, it actually barely involves us because it's really about giving God the praise that is due him and inviting others by the experience of being a part of our corporate worship to experience the good thing that we know in God himself. Just a, a real practical point to make on that is kind of on that foundation. Because we're doing all those things when we gather together as a church and sing I think it's important, and, and please don't accuse me of micromanaging the church for this, I think it's important that we actually sing out loud. Like, not just kind of nod our heads to the beat and not just sort of mouth the words, but actually sing the words out loud as if we want someone to hear them. Now, some of you may be like me, and if you were to do that by yourself up front with a microphone, it would be a curse on everyone else. Okay? <laughs> I, I get that. Uh, you also may be like me in that you genuinely have trouble following along with the songs. I have to concentrate a lot to sing out loud. I'm not even making a joke. Uh, like walking, chewing gum I can do, singing and reading at the same time for some reason is really tricky for me. And, and so if we ever, we don't do this stuff often, but if we ever do this stuff where like the guys sing one song or one lyric and the girls sing another, I'm out. I do not do that. Uh, I will start laughing. I will start singing the wrong part. And I just can't do it. So I get that there's, a, there's kind of a social and human thing going on as we're singing out loud. And, and you know, you're in a smaller room and you, you don't want to be singing over the, the instruments or the, the folks up here and things like that. But I just want to remind us as a church, when, when we gather corporately and we begin to worship God through song, this is what we're doing. Praise is due to him. And so we ought to sing out loud. He is worthy of our praise. So we have to sing with, with joy. And because it's ultimately about him and about inviting others into this corporate experience of enjoying him, we ought to be able to get beyond those social things that would cause us to want to kind of just hum along and nod our heads. Because it's not ultimately about us at all. So that's verse one. Praise is due to you. Um, Lots of things uh, to talk about there. Praise is due. That's actually just the first four words, five words of verse one. Uh, praise is due to you, O God. Uh, where David goes with the rest of this psalm is he, he invites us into this experience of praise by, by recounting to God. I think this is a corporate thing, even in its original setting. So recounting to the people that were singing with him why God is worthy of praise, right? So it's, it's not this heavy-handed, you should praise because God said praise. It's we get to praise God because let's remember how great he is. And I think he gives us this in sort of three categories that we can see as we walk through the text. He begins with himself and his, his fellow Israelites, God's people, and then he spans out to include all of mankind and eventually all of creation itself. So we look first at God's relationship with his people, and that's what we see there in verses 2 through Four, David begins by praising God for having a personal and intimate relationship with his people. He says, 
He hears our prayers. What an what a amazing thought. He hears our prayers. So this psalm seems to celebrate maybe a specific time when God had visited his people Israel and responded to their prayers. It's a Thanksgiving psalm. This would be a great psalm to read on Thanksgiving this November or a day like that when you're setting aside time as a family or personally to just give God praise for some great things he's done in your life. This, this psalm puts words to those feelings. In the original context with David, we don't know exactly what was going on. It's not dated or anything like that, but it seems like it was possibly related to a harvest, to a particularly good year of crops. And you guys know Israel was an agrarian society. That would have been hugely important to them. And so David seems to be perhaps have gathered the nation together, or at least he's thinking about what it would be like to gather them together. He's surveying the year that has just passed. He's thinking the crops were great. The harvest was bountiful. We've been at relative peace with our enemies. I mean, this sounds very, very different than some of the Psalms we've been looking at where David's on the run and he's attacked and he's downcast and all these sorts of things. It's a very good day. And as David is reflecting on all the good in his life in the moment, he recognizes that this good has come as an answer to prayer. And and you've probably experienced that before. You have those sweet moments where you're enjoying something good, something that really blesses your soul. And and maybe it just comes to you all of a sudden, I prayed for this. I specifically asked God to bring this about. Here it is. Here is the thing that I've asked God to do. He hears our prayers. This is part of that relationship with his people And and then verse 3 reminds us, he also atones for our sins. And that's very much related to prayer in this context. You can imagine for Israel, as they're praying, you know, six months prior, and they're praying for God to bring a bountiful harvest. They're praying for God to bless their crops this year. They're praying for God to provide for them again. Some of them are probably thinking in the back of their mind, just like you and I have at different times in our own lives, I don't really even deserve the thing I'm asking God to do. I mean, if I'm honest, I'm asking him to do... Sometimes I pray and I kind of feel like, you know, I've earned this. Other times I pray and I just think, oh God, I I just have no business even, even praying this. I have no business saying this out loud. I have no business going to you and asking you to bring about this good, but... Would you anyway, Lord? Would you in your, in your kindness, Lord, look past my sin and faults and all the reasons why you shouldn't respond to me? And would you respond to me in, in grace? And in verse 3 there, David says, When iniquities prevail against me, when that thought comes to my mind, gosh, I just don't know if God can overcome this, you atone for our transgressions. You have provided a way for us to know you through your Son And and in his grace and mercy, you show us how you can still answer these prayers, even even when we don't feel in any way that we deserve it. So God answers our prayers not because of us, but in spite of us. And David recognizes it even as he's praying for his people and, and thinking about the things that they have prayed for this past year. And then we see in verse four how this redemption that we experience, this this bridging of the gap between us and God, it it leads us to a joyful relationship. And that, again, is behind what we saw in in verse 1. Blessed is the one you choose and bring near, 
to dwell in your court. So it's celebrating the nearness of God and how God has brought his people near to himself. Now in the Old Testament, God brought his people near as they brought offerings near to him. Right? They, they brought the offerings and through that, this is basically a paraphrase of Levit- Leviticus 1, 1 and 2, through those offerings, he came near to them. In the New Testament age, he has come near to us, to his people in Christ, his son, and sent Christ as the ultimate offering that we might come near to God through him. And this nearness brings us joy and satisfaction. So when we read words like uh, Psalm 65 verse 4 in the Old Testament, we read these on the lips of David, we have to remember this is before Christ ever entered the world. And so if David can experience this fullness of satisfaction in his day, long before the cross, long before the incarnation, long before Christ walked the earth, how much more should we? What David expresses here is but a foretaste of what we know in full. We have this full relationship with God. And so David is really kind of processing his joy in the moment, I think, as he's, he's looking around his people and he's thinking, you know, guys, it's been a good year. We are surrounded by a bountiful harvest. We have seen some great things. But as we think about these things, let us remember that these things come from God. And before we get really, really excited about having enough food this year and really, really excited about having peace with our enemies, let's remember that these things come from God. And we prayed for God to bring these things about. Yeah, I shared with you guys a couple months ago a book I was reading about um, the White House Chiefs of Staff. Um, a fascinating little book about uh, all the men and women that have served as the Chief of Staff to the President of the United States. And one of the arguments that the book makes is that the person in that role is at any given time the second most influential human on the planet. Because you think about it, the President of the U.S., is the leader of the free world. What does his chief of staff do? Well, the chief of staff determines who gets on his schedule, determines who's going to set his agenda, determines who gets his ear, determines who gets to talk to him and make their presentations to him and when and how much time they get and how quickly they're ushered out the door. That person, the book argued, and I think rightly, says that person is the second most influential person on the planet at any given moment. Now, what these first four verses of this psalm uh, and this reflection tell us is that God has no chief of staff between him and his people. We we don't have to worry about getting on his agenda. We we don't come to God in prayer and say, "Would you would you please file this through the system?" And I hope you know I've made this impressive presentation, and I hope it gets to you. This is this is really important. Here are all the reasons why. But our needs are in his heart before we even speak them. He is aware and he knows, and we don't have to fear that we will never get to his agenda. We have his ear even now. He hears our prayer. So David reflects on this great relationship, and then he begins to span it out. And he begins to think uh, not just about God's relationship with his people, but with the nation's. And so you look at verse 5 there. He says, By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth 
and of the farthest seas. So the God of our salvation, David has been talking about, he acts on behalf of his people for his purposes. And what these verses begin to tell us is that part of God's purposes are always uh, to get the attention of those who are not his people, to, to grab the eyes of those who are far from him, that they might see he is the one true God. And we see this all throughout the Old Testament. You think about some of the great, uh, awesome deeds of the Lord in the Old Testament. You think about um, when uh, God conquered Pharaoh and his army, when he parted the Red Sea for Moses and the Israelites to walk through, when he preserved them through the wilderness, when he helped them to cross the Jordan, when he conquered their enemies on the other side of the Jordan as they were beginning to take, uh, take hold of Canaan. Every time you see several things happening, you see God's people pray, you see God respond with something we might call an awesome deed in the language of uh, David here, and then you see God acknowledging that the reason he's doing this is in part to get the attention of the nations. It's not ultimately for the people themselves. It's for his greater purposes that Pharaoh in Egypt, that the Canaanites, that whoever else is watching and aware would know that there is a God in Israel and he is a global God. He is no tribal deity that is just concerned about his faint little people here, but he has claim over the whole earth. And that claim, as you see in verse 6 there, is rooted in his role as the creator. So David goes on, speaking of God, the one who by his strength established the mountains, being girded with might. So even the mountains, we start to reflect on creation here, even the mountains, which seem so steady, are girded with the might of God. They're held together with God's hands. The waves answer his voice in verse 7. He stills the roaring of the seas, the roaring of their waves, even the tumult of the peoples. Now you see these just chaotic circumstances around the globe, and you think it's all getting out of control. And David reminds us, no, God is ruling over those things as creator. Because he made them, they belong to him, and he gets to set their course. That point is something that our kids understand. And I think we can actually, uh, as adults, maybe feel this point a little more strongly as we think about our kids uh, and how they grasp that creation equals ownership. Okay, so right now in our, our Kidlands ministry, if you have a kid in there, uh, five and under, uh, they're right now working on uh, some craft of some kind. Uh, there may be coloring a sheet of paper uh, there's probably glitter glue involved. Um, I'm sure it's tremendous. Uh, they're working on some grand masterpiece. And as they are doing it, one of our highly skilled and trained teachers is going around and saying, be sure to write your name on it. All right? Why are they telling them to write their name on it? Because they know that that kid who created that thing as they are forming it, as they are making it, as they are developing their masterpiece, they are grasping ownership of it. And, and lest you not believe that, go in there at the end of that class when all those papers are in a stack and just talk, start passing them out. You know, everybody gets one. It doesn't matter which one is which. They're all the same. And the kids say, no, that is not mine. 
Mine was purple, hers was pink, mine had the blue dot, his had the red dot. I made it, it is mine. Because I created it, I own it. Our kids get that. And we hear it every day when those things get crossed over, right? Uh, we could easily uh, imagine that scenario in our own children's ministry. But what they're understanding there is actually the same thing that David is saying here. Because God created the world, because he created the peoples, because he created those waves in the ocean, he owns them. Creation is possession. Possession means ruling. He governs them. He will guide them to his own purposes. And in this particular context, what David is highlighting is that his purposes involve the nations seeing his glory as creator and ruler of the world. So God's relationship with the nations involves doing things with his people and even in creation to draw their attention, to draw them to himself. And then lastly, we look at God's relationship with nature. In the beginning of verse, in the middle of verse 8, he says, You make the going out of the morning and the evening to shout for joy. You visit the earth and you water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, for so you have prepared it. The, the, the picture here that David is painting is God is a divine farmer, cultivating the earth like a farmer cares for his land. And, and we're kind of given nature's perspective as the recipient, as they receive the rain and, and the, the hard ground is softened and as the, the thirsty soil is watered in abundance. And it reminds us that the natural world is trying to tell us something. Right? The, the creation we live in has a message to bear given to it by its creator. And it's easy to get caught up in admiring nature for nature's sake and miss the message altogether. Another part in that same little book, Lewis says, uh, when we do this, when we focus on nature so much, we focus on creation so much that we miss its message, we, we would be like a little child who admires the, the uh, uniform of the postman so much that they forget to take in the letters. I mean, you can imagine the postman shows up at the door and most of our postmen don't wear uniforms anymore, but Lewis in England, the middle of the 20th century, really cool uniforms, I'm sure. The postman shows up at the door and the kid goes, wow, and just takes it in and misses the fact that the postman has arrived to get, deliver a message. The postman has letters from somewhere else. The point of the moment is not seeing the postman and admiring his or her uniform. It's getting the message that the postman has come to deliver. And that's what we often do with creation itself. We, we miss its message by focusing too much on its beauty. Uh, when, when China and I went on our honeymoon, we went to Kalispell, Montana. I'm sure lots of you did. Uh, lots of people go to Montana for their honeymoon. Uh, but we, we got to go hiking um, in Glacier National Park. And we hiked up to this place called, um, that's not true. We drove up to this place called Logan's Pass and hiked from there. Uh, you drive up this road called Going to the Sun Road. So you can just imagine how that got its name. Uh, it gives you an idea of how high those mountains are. I grew up near the Appalachian Mountains. When I got to the Rockies, I realized those were Appalachian Hills over here. Um, and the, the Rockies are mountains. It's a different thing altogether. And so we, we went up to this place called Logan's Pass. There was this boardwalk kind of trail to this overlook. We walked out to it, and, and you look over, and you're just kind of walking into this sort of mountain scene, and then you get to the overlook, and you look, and there's this uh, glacial lake. 
This is a little lake formed uh, when the, the glaciers on top of the mountains melt down and they form a little lake in this valley. And it is absolutely breathtaking. I mean, it is, it is gorgeous. You know, and you just think this thing has existed for decades, centuries, maybe longer, and no one has seen it until the last few years. What was its purpose all that time? It wasn't our enjoyment. It, it wasn't for, for us to take it in and look at it and see what it is. It was that God might declare his beauty and his goodness and his glory through it. And he's been forming it for years and years and years that we might see it and take it in and get its message. But oh, how easy it is. I remember that day we were kind of reflecting on this. What made me think of it. Uh, it, it that day we were... We were um, we were viewing the scene and we were talking about how amazing that God made something like this. And we were around these people who uh, were basically just kind of taking it in, checking it off their list and going to the next tourist stop. And it just frustrated me because I just thought you guys are missing it. It's, it's not just another thing to see and check off your list and go on to the next thing. This image, this view that you could not possibly imagine, it has a message for you. And the message is someone has made it and that someone has made you and that someone invites you into a relationship with him. And yet it's so easy to gaze at creation itself and miss the message that it has come to bear. Like a little kid staring at a postman's uniform and forgetting to take in the letters. David's not making that mistake. He gets that creation has a message, and so he's reflecting on that in those last few verses there. He talks about how the wagon is overflowing in its tracks. The mountains are overflowing with sheep, and I think these are really images of David's own heart as, they're, as his heart is overflowing with praise. He's joining in creation. He's joining creation and shouting and singing together with it with joy. So when we think about the ground this psalm covers, we think about God's relationship with nature, we think about God's relationship with the nations, and, and then God's relationship with his own people, and even those of us individually who call ourselves Christians this morning, I think it's, it's important just as we close that we remember not to separate those relationships. That the God we speak of and sing to and pray to and talk about and trust in and hope in is all these things. He's not merely the creator. Some, someone to think of God in that way. That he, he made the world and just sort of set it to run its course on its own. In, in the modern church, we might give him two of those categories. I think in, in modern America, this is where we often stop. He created us. He sort of deals with the big stuff, the nations and things like that. But he's not really intimately involved in our own lives. And so we... We think of God as the one who made us, the one who's generally guiding history, and a place we can turn if things get really, really bad. But day to day, we function as if we don't think of him as redeemer. Psalm 65 brings these three aspects of God together in a way that I think is really important for us to see. We see that the God who created and governs the world is also the God who came to die for us that we might have a personal relationship with him. He established the mountains he enriches the earth. He stills the roaring waves. He calms the warring nations. 
And yet, he hears our prayers. He is that big, and yet he's able to be that small and near to each of us. And he invites us to sing for joy in his presence. So Psalm Psalm 65 is a good reflection and encouragement toward that end. Uh, Each week here, we, we close our time with communion. And uh, we do this every Sunday. Uh, the communion tables are in the back. Uh, the, uh, the, the bread and, and juice is prepared. Uh, in a moment, we're going we're gonna to sing, and, and I'm just going to invite you to, to go to the back of the room and uh, you take the bread, and you can dip it in, and uh, you can commemorate the death of Christ. Uh, this is something that, that we consider open to all believers. So if, if you're a Christian, even if you're a guest to our church this morning, but if you're, if you're a Christian, if you yourself have this personal relationship with God through Jesus, his son that we're talking about, then uh, we invite you to come and enjoy of the table now. Uh, if you're not a Christian, though, if, if you wouldn't consider yourself a follower of Jesus, and it wouldn't be appropriate for you to participate in this. This is really a, a family meal. And I want to encourage you, if, if that is you, to, to take this time and really reflect on those last couple of things we talked about. That, that God is the ruler of the nations. He is the creator of all nature and all that we see. And yet in his love, he has sent his son that you might have a personal relationship with him. And even today, he invites you into that in his grace. See, we're going to sing now. I actually asked the, the band um, if we could sing this song because I think it so relates to Psalm 65. It's, it's an old hymn called My Father's World. And it's just a good reminder to me of the scope of this world and, and how great and majestic it is. And yet the, the God who made it and the God who rules over it and the God who owns it all lets me call him Father and invites us into a relationship with him through his Son. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll sing and invite you to the communion tables in the back. Let's pray. God, thank you that we can come to you through Christ your Son. I pray that in these moments we would reflect on the great love you have shown to us as creator, as sustainer, as redeemer, as father and friend. For those of us who are in Christ, may, may we be strengthened, may we be encouraged, and may we be challenged to give words to our thoughts and feelings as we seek to go forth from here and praise you every day. Praise is due to you, O oh God. It's our privilege to get to praise you, and I pray that we would see it as that as we go from here, eager to tell others of the wonders of knowing you. And God, for any who may be here who may not know of this love, who, who may know you as creator, uh, and, and perhaps distantly in other senses, but not truly know you as redeemer and father, Lord, I pray that you would open their hearts now to receive faith, that they would, they would hear your gospel today, and that you would, you would give them clarity of mind to, to turn to you. And we pray these things in Christ's name.